0: This week on Fax Machine, we learn why a clean shave might save you beer money, how soda was conceived by impregnating water, and Noah gets ambitions to break a sausage making world record. Welcome to Fax Machine. Welcome to this week's episode of Fax Machine. I'm Emily Costa and I'm here with my co-host Noah Guyberson. Hello. And Rob Frawley. Hey there. And as you might have noticed, we're sounding exceptionally dulcet tone today thanks to some swanky new audio equipment and an even swankier new producer who's running it. You know him as the composer of Fax Machine's badass face-melting intro theme. It's Anthony Antonelli. Hey. You can't see, but he's waving right now. <laughs> <laughs> What's that, Anthony? Speak up. I'm <laughs> <laughs> not ready to be a part of the <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you just got an easier way in. Since this episode is coming to you on the heels of St. Patty's Day, this week we're talking about Guinness. Now, for some of you, it's probably a lovely day for a Guinness, but for those of you who are still feeling a little green from the weekend's festivities, I implore you to grab some Pepto and stick it out with us. Between this week's exchange of fascinating facts and our signature pub style trivia quiz, loosely inspired by the theme, of course, we've got some pretty awesome stuff brewing. So, without further ado, Rob, what have you got for us?
1: This week I learned that the man who invented the nitro beer, which gives Guinness its signature flavor and texture, had never brewed a beer in his life and was actually a professional trained mathematician.
0: Whoa. Interesting.
1: Yeah. So a little career change at some point in his life. Uh, It's not too late for you guys. (laughs) <laughs> so, Noted <laughs> This is the interesting story of a man named Michael Ash um, So Michael Ash was born in Calcutta, 1927 uh, He moved back to the British Isles Where he then attended Trinity College, Cambridge And was a top scholar He went on to teach and stay in academia for a little while Until 1948, when he was hired by Guinness For no particular reason Except that he was very <laughs> smart And Guinness, Guinness knew they needed smart people To try to refine their brewing process And kind of increase efficiency in the factory And so what they asked him to do initially uh, is not what he's famous for, uh, to the degree that he's famous at all. Um, he actually was brought in because they wanted to try to increase the shelf life of beer. And so his first project, right out of you know his math program, was, hey, add a couple months to this beer. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was what he worked on for a little bit. But his true passion was trying to fix this problem about how Guinness used to be poured. Um, so Guinness is, even today, a very complex beer to pour. And uh, if, you, if you've had a Guinness, you've seen the artisan like craftfulness that goes into making <laughs> the perfect Guinness. It was much harder before the 1950s, because what you needed to do, you actually needed two separate casks, and this is called the draft problem. That one cask was the high cask, or the, the beer that was made to go on top, and the rest of it was the low cask, and that was all the remaining beer that filled the glass. And they had different textures and weights, in fact, and they would sit atop each other in such a way that made the perfect creamy Guinness. Um, But this was not only difficult to pour, and it took time for bartenders and publicans to actually do, but it required um, you shipping two separate casks of beer and having the right ratios in them and then use them properly. And so it was not cost effective, and it, it really irked Ash. He really wanted to make this happen. And so he set about fixing it. And in the way that only a true nerd can do, he identified that one of the problems was the gas that they were using in the beer. So instead of carbonating beer with carbon or carbon dioxide, like most pop drinks, most beers are, he turned to nitrogen. So he saw nitrogen as the the answer, and he put it quite clearly. He said, quote, it's such an obvious gas. (laughs) <laughs> like any idiot could see. But he, he liked it for it was inert. It was something that was in the atmosphere. It's 80% of what we breathe. And so he really believed, like, oh, this is the perfect thing to put into our beer. It has the properties we want. It's going to make this beer behave in the cask the way that we want it to. The only problem was, it would require a completely different type of keg. Um, so once he would figured out the chemical issue uh, of putting nitrogen into beer. Then he had to figure out how to dispense that beer from a single cask. Um, So he worked for a long time with Guinness cask makers. Um, And Guinness was about 190 years old when he tried to completely change the way that they kegged and bottled and shipped their beer. So (laughs) So there was a lot of opposition, I bet. Yeah, it was... You know how things are. Like it takes a little bit of uh, takes a little bit of evidence to show that something should be changed. So uh, this was not uh, widely received in the Guinness factory as a great idea. Um, so people looked at him and his newfangled kegs and his <laughs> crazy chemistry experiments, and they came up with a few different uh, nicknames for his project. One of them they called Daft Guinness, <laughs> but the other one like Draft <laughs> but Dumb. Yeah. <laughs> But the other one that's really good is they called his uh, his keg the Ash Can. Okay,
0: that's, that's, that's actually good. <laughs> that's so good. <laughs> that's, that's quite
2: good. I mean, I think he's definitely the protagonist of this story, but that was like a solid burn. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whoever came with that one, well done. Yeah. <laughs> but
1: so eventually he did work on this problem and managed to get a keg that could dispense beer in two different ways. Uh, so one that would pour what was traditionally the low cask beer into the, the body of the glass. And then you could switch the dispenser on the cask and pour out the high cask beer would form the head. This is still essentially the same keg that we use today in bars to, to serve Guinness. And so it took him about 10 years to, to really get this process working and to show some prototypes to Guinness that they were satisfied with, and they liked the flavor, and they actually liked how efficient and, and cost-saving it was. And they finally launched the keg in 1959. But the last couple of years of this project, they really pushed him to be able to produce and mass-produce these kinds of kegs, because 1959 was the 200th anniversary of Guinness.
2: Right. Okay.
1: And so, as part of their bicentennial, they are trying to rebrand this new delivery mechanism for the beer so that everyone could enjoy the perfect pour of Guinness much more easily.
2: That always goes really well, if you yeah. recall New Coke.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> like, the exact same. Like, we're all still drinking New Coke, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> but we are still yeah. all drinking New Guinness.
1: Yeah, which is the amazing thing. Yeah. yeah and, stuck like, around. this could have gone horribly, horribly wrong. Like, this could, this could have been just, you know think of the worst like micro-brewed beer you've ever had. This could have been Guinness, but instead it it became like this hallmark. And so the reason was, even though a lot of people did actually object initially to the new flavor of Guinness, they said that the nitrogen kind of stifles the flavor, the aroma was lost, like the entire drinking experience changed. Um, A lot of people liked it. A lot of people, especially to whom the beer was exported, really enjoyed it. And so overseas sales of Guinness really went up right after the 200th birthday and this was all because Ash had made this very stable keg that could be sent distances and and dispensed all at once so that any dumb American could pour the right perfect Guinness.
2: (laughs) There's a great story about Barack Obama who, on a a later trip to Ireland, talked about a previous trip that was, I think top secret at the time where he was, his uh, Air Force One was on the way to Afghanistan and they stopped down in Shannon and had enough time to like get a beer. Um, And he said, I mean, having had Guinness in the States, he said that his Guinness in Ireland was much better. Now he might've just been pandering, (laughs) but, I think I just feel like he wouldn't lie to us. But
0: what would his motives be? <laughs> it's just a good Guinness.
2: He's pandering to the Irish electorate. Why? <laughs> well, because there are more Irish
1: people in the United States than in all of Ireland. Oh, I was kidding. That's oh, a really good point, Yeah. Oh,
0: that is a good point. Okay, there we go. Oh. And Ask the Irish and we answer. never
2: forget. Rub's
1: Irish.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you should clarify. <laughs> yeah. Even though I sounded like the Swedish chef, right
2: there. please please don't <laughs> write <point>. in. No. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of other people who have famous associations with Guinness, um, there's a guy I've been trying to bring up on the podcast for a while, um, and it's the Irish writer and playwright Brendan Behan. um, And he is... He has a couple really excellent plays, uh, one pretty famous novel, um, but the story about him in particular that I want to tell comes from uh, his first uh, really well-received play, that's The Queer Fellow. Um, it had opened to great reviews in Ireland, uh, It had a couple years had passed, I think, and then it was finally ready to open in the West End in London, so like the Broadway of London. And so he was doing a promotional appearance on a TV show, and this appearance ended up generating a ton of publicity for the show, and people got really, really excited about it. And this was kind of weird to have a lot of British people, particularly English people, really excited about this guy, because his background was, you know, he was born into like an Irish Republican family, he had actually joined the IRA as a teenager, so it's not exactly the kind of person you would expect for, for English people to, like, really fall in love with. But they fell in love with him because of his behavior on that television show. And basically, he was just really, really hammered on Guinness. (laughs) Um, And actually, uh, for some reason, they just absolutely fell in love with him. And there was actually another person on that show at the time, the Irish-American comedian, you know, you guys guys know uh, Jackie Gleason?
1: Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. The Honeymooners.
2: Who, at the time, described his newfound popularity in London as, quote, not an act of God, but as an act of Guinness. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which <laughs> that was pretty funny but he has a couple other stories about him that he, him throughout his life being closely associated with guinness um and that is uh one of the best ones is that guinness was looking for a new like ad campaign and he was a very famous celebrated irish author and so they went to him and they commissioned him to write a slogan for them and his terms were that they would have to give him a uh i think it was like a crate of guinness or a case of guinness some some large quantity of guinness every single week that he was working on this new slogan and then uh, like he would come back to them and give them what he had and but he needed to drink the beer to like get in the guinness (laughs) mood or whatever spirit yeah spirit (laughs) (laughs) nice (laughs) um but some time passed a couple weeks uh they kept sending him the beer they were getting no slogan in return and finally apparently some guinness representatives come by his apartment and they go in and there's just like Guinness bottles everywhere and just like balled up paper like around the, you know, wastebasket everywhere. He's just like lying on the ground and uh, then they were like, well, where's our slogan? And then he gets up, like unfolds one of the pieces of paper and it just says, Guinness, it gets you drunk.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I've got to say, I feel like that's a, a perverse incentive system where it's like, Here's something that clearly doesn't improve productivity, and we'll give it to you every
2: week until you finish. <laughs> well, I mean, arguably, that's a great slogan. It's, I
1: mean, the
0: it's,
2: thesis statement is right there. Yeah, mm.
0: It does not mince words, for sure. So uh, speaking of populations of people for whom uh, the drinking of Guinness might be an unusual experience, seeing as how I'm recording this in a room full of bearded fellows, uh, which you can't see, but you can just take my word <laughs> for it. Uh, I looked into a study uh, that was covered in some t- articles from 2000 in both the Guardian and the BBC um, about some research commissioned by Guinness to sort of see what the drinking experience was like for bearded Guinness drinkers. Nice. Mm. So, uh, so per Guinness's calculations, roughly 162,719 pints of their signature drink are lost every year in the oh, UK God. due to the imbibers. Mustaches, or oh, generally no. facial hair, but stashes are just say, more fun to say.
2: I'd say pour some out, but that just compounds the problem.
0: Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> pour some out directly into your facial hair. So. <laughs>
2: I, I mean, I'm not going to pretend like I haven't poured beer in my face.
0: <laughs> uh, is it because it's kind of like a like a Gatorade in a barrel kind of scenario of just like of just a, a, drenching yourself a wash in, in celebration? Victorious Guinness?
2: No, okay, um, <laughs> just you know, just stray beer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's fair. No, I'm just saying I'm very familiar with this concept. Yeah, and I, I'm super grateful that someone actually took
1: the time to study this because it's the kind of thing that like can ruin your three seconds of your life as you have just like a big foamy mustache. Well, so the crazy thing about it looks is at that you. And you're like, what are you Urgh, saying? Urgh,
0: Urgh.
1: <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying that you get really self-conscious about it. Well,
0: I didn't see anything about that issue specifically (laughs) in the results of this study. But I will say that it does get surprisingly granular in terms of breaking down the sort of specific volume loss and also loss of cost um, that basically disappears in someone's facial hair. So the average mustachioed Guinness drinker loses one and a half pints of Guinness to their stash every year. And that breaks down to an annual beard tax of four and a half pounds. So in other words, the summation of money that you pay on beer... and a half pounds of that in the UK, it's lost to your beard.
2: (laughs) I wonder if they break it down by like the amount of beard that you have. You know what I mean? Because it's like, I'm sure that there's another dimension. Yeah. Okay.
0: So this calculation takes into account, um, you know, some normal totals that you would think of the number of Guinness drinkers in the UK, the average amount they consume every year, and then even a breakdown in terms of sips per pint, and then the amount of stash sips per normal like down your gullets <laughs> but my favorite factor is the one that you just referenced and that the previously cited numbers that i gave you apply to an average mustache surface area but they further broke it down to different types of facial hair okay so the only problem with this is that all of the references or i guess visual references they gave for this were british celebrities and personalities which i recognize some but not others so i had to do some googling <laughs> <laughs> to kind of find their American equivalents and make this palatable uh, for our, I think, mostly American audience. And then I had to explain to my roommate why she encountered me fervently scrolling through a webpage filled with pictures of Burt Reynolds, but that's besides the point. <laughs> so, you should never have to account <laughs> for that. Ne- uh, no explanations. It makes me more mysterious. <laughs> so, for example... A Teddy Roosevelt walrus-style mustache plus a little bit of Martin Van Buren-esque sideburns will set you back a whopping $36 per year as a beard tax. <laughs> I'm,
1: I'm going to bur- need an explanation on what the sideburns are doing in this, <laughs> this particular equation. It just,
0: I imagine it acting like a sponge where it just sort of, the more facial you're, like hair it, you have, it, it just kind of it wicks it to the side. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> I think we should tell. well, you guys, I can't. But you guys should test this empirically in your own experiences.
1: Check our Instagram
3: <laughs> <laughs> for, for updates.
0: Oh, that's gonna be so gross. Uh, <laughs> a a Burt Reynolds, so uh, more trim but very dense style soup strainer sets you back sixteen bucks a year. Um, a more thinned out kind of five o'clock shadowy Robert Downey Jr. flavor saver sets you back twelve dollars. Uh, and, uh, one of the British examples, uh, was this guy named Noel Edmonds, who is a British TV presenter. Um, but actually the easiest facial hair comparison that I could find for him was all of you guys. So kind of well-trimmed beard mustache combos, um, so check her Instagram for the visual version of that. Uh, so you guys lose a whopping $30 a year wow. to your facial hair. So
1: I have one question, which is what do they think? So the mustache catches the beer, and then why don't I just drink it out of my mustache? <laughs> <laughs> it's right uh, there. I, I guess you're not trying hard enough. I don't know what to tell you, well, man. So is, I'll it, tell you. is it
2: really lost is my question. So something, <laughs> so something I've experienced is that I feel like Every time, like, I get up in the middle of the night, I'm, like, really dehydrated, so I go get a big cup of water. Like, if I drink a lot of water, half of it is going down my chest. Like, that is happening. (laughs) And it's a really unpleasant thing. And there's, like, I think about it, most of the time I realize it's happening sort of mid-gulp, and I try to adjust, and that just makes everything worse, because I'm, like, breaking the seal. And so I think that it's going out of the mustache, then, like, down the sides of the mouth.
1: I think you might have a
2: drinking problem. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I prefer to think of it as a drinking opportunity.
0: <laughs> We're only a third way into this episode, and I'm going to say with fair amount of confidence that is the most dad of the jokes that's going to happen.
2: This week I learned students' t test, everyone's favorite statistical hypothesis test, was invented by a chemist working at Guinness in order to monitor the quality of their beer. So around the year 1900, uh, what was then known as the Arthur Guinness and Son Brewery, um, which had actually in 1886 become the largest brewery in the world. So they were huge at this point. They started recruiting scientists, like you mentioned, Rob. Actually, before that, they were actively recruiting scientists to address questions like how to continue producing, you know, gigantic quantities of beer while also maintaining consistency in terms of quality, right? So William Seeley Gossett. Freshly graduated from Oxford. All right, he's got degrees in chemistry, mathematics. He is hot shit, okay? He started working at this brewery. The idol of our fan club here. Yeah, yeah. So Gossett begins working at Guinness, and he realizes pretty quickly that meticulous statistical analysis of processes such as barley production and yeast fermentation could profoundly improve the quality control process. However, the existing statistical tests used to estimate averages traditionally had used sample sizes that were way too big to possibly be economical for Guinness. So Gossett... Realizing this, attempts to adapt these tests for small sample sizes, and he found that doing so introduced a whole new source of uncertainty, that is, any variation that's attributable to like random or unknown information, which makes it nearly impossible to distinguish between actual, genuine differences between, say, two batches of hops and differences due to this sort of random uncertainty. So Guinness sends Gossett to go study at University College London with the then eminent statistician Carl Pearson, who, you know, the oh. biologists in the room may recognize of, from of the...
0: correlation fame. Yes, of correlation fame, coefficient.
2: Pearson's coefficient. And, and with Pearson, he was able to adapt large sample-based statistical methods to one that could, like, easily analyze and take in small sample sizes, an approach that became known as the t-test. But why do we learn about students' t-test instead of Gossett's t-test? The answer is that Gossett set out to improve Guinness's quality control, and by ensuring that could be done with a smaller sample size, he saved them a lot of money. So naturally, Guinness wanted to keep that information within the company, as control of this technique was a really huge competitive advantage over other breweries. Gossett, on the other hand, ever the scientist, believed that a mathematical breakthrough such as this must be published for the benefit of humanity. History is split on what happened next. Depending on who you ask, either they came to an agreement that Gossett could publish his findings under a pseudonym so that other breweries would be less likely to make the connection to brewing, or Gossett went all Muave Galileo style and published under the pseudonym Student so they wouldn't be able to trace it back to him. Whatever the real story is, Gossett continued to work at Guinness and to publish under the name Student until his death in 1935 and at the age of 61. Now, it's important that Guinness's lawyers understand that I am oh, not suggesting that a lifetime of drinking loads of their stout gave him a heart attack. Okay? Not at all. I'm just saying that if it were hypothetically the case, it wouldn't be a bad way to go. Full of delicious foamy Guinness at the end of a statistically significant life. Ooh,
0: that's yeah. nice. That is a good So I looked into some other surprising ways that beer has contributed to scientific advancements. Awesome. Uh, One of them involves Joseph Priestley, the 18th century theologian and chemist who's now mostly remembered as the discoverer of oxygen, but also lesser known for this, developed one of the earliest methods of carbonation and is also the inventor of the soft drink. Oh, Oh, wow. So he actually was initially inspired to begin his lifetime study of gases after living next door to a brewery in Leeds. Uh, And he was specifically intrigued by the layer of fixed air, which is what carbon (laughs) dioxide was called at the time. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that hovered above uh, the bubbling vats of beer um, without mixing with the normal air above it. And he found out that by placing a bowl above these vats, uh, carbon dioxide could be absorbed by the water in the bowl and to a tasty effect. And in his 1772 paper, impregnating water with fixed air, he <laughs> laid out the earliest method of carbonation. Um, this technique was later adapted to make carbonated mineral water and expanded to uh, manufacturing and bottling scale by a name that might sound familiar, Johann Jacob Schwepp. And the oh. company he founded around this beverage still exists today. Wow. And it's called Schweppes. Schweppes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, another story that I found involves someone who is much lesser known, but it, it's just too greatest story not to share um so this involves the work of the 19th century naturalist and polymath sir john lubbock so i guess he kind of is known though not i guess remembered for this but for coining the terms paleolithic and neolithic really so we got that from him interesting good job sir lubbock uh (laughs) but he was also a devout student of the biology life cycle and social behaviors of ants So in his book, Ants, Bees, and Wasps, A Record of Observations on the Habits of the Social Hymenoptera, he describes a series of experiments that were designed to determine whether ants identify friends or their colony mates, essentially, uh, versus strangers, and whether or not they treat those friends or strangers differently depending on this level of familiarity. So the premise of these experiments is interesting, but also a little bit cruel. He would basically have a colony of ants and then drop either colony mates or strangers in among them. And they'd be sort of on this kind of controlled area where there was the main colony, and then there was also this artificial moat of water. And they would see if members of the central colony would either basically pick up the incapacitated friend or stranger <laughs> that was dropped into the situation and carry them back to the colony or carry them to the water and drown them. Yeah, nice. ants oh are God. ants are surprisingly merciless. That's so <laughs> interesting. So.
1: One of my research students right now is doing an ant project um, and she's doing something somewhat similar where they take an ant from a colony and then they remove its antenna um, and they want to see how it interacts with its colony. If it loses all of its behavioral uh, adaptability or if it becomes like an outsider or if it gets confused. Um, but that means that this this student of mine has been reading all this ridiculous things that ants do. There's a, a type of fungus called the cordyceps fungus, mm-hmm. which is yeah. worth going into in much more detail.
0: I, I, yeah, I really hope we have an episode where that's relevant to discuss. S- without giving away <laughs> anything
1: about that fungus, what ants do when one is infected, if other ants detect that it's infected, most of them run away. One ant picks it up and carries it as far as it can until it dies. Wow. wow. And basically just gets that's it out ant. of there. Yeah.
2: It's really, really fascinating. So ants. Speaking of another relationship between ants and fungus, is I think that people have now generally agreed in the biology field that the earliest example of farming is actually ants living sort of coexisting alongside fungus that uh, it's like very it's like not a pathological fungus that grows inside their hives and they very clearly maintain it almost exactly like you would imagine like little tiny farmers would um and that that i mean is definitely by all the criteria we could uh, you know throw at it is farming and existed tens of thousands of years before our farming did so
1: there's one just to one-up you uh-huh. in your proto-farming. <laughs> what um, we're here for. Oh, boy. So there's there's a type of fungus uh, called a slime mold, which yeah. is also a mm-hmm. fascinating living thing that goes through many life cycles and can be multi and single cellular at different stages. Um, but the f- slime mold uh, incubates bacteria inside of it. By making a sugar that is useless to it, the bacteria will come and eat, and it'll grow the bacteria like on an agar plate inside of it wow. so that it can then what? eat the bacteria later.
0: Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay, so the takeaway from this is that we need to do a fungus episode. (laughs) I think that's what we just learned. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But back to the ants momentarily. So I mentioned that part of these experiments involved incapacitating some ants and then seeing what uh, either happy happenstance or tragic happenstance befell them. And some of the methods that he used to incapacitate them included uh, actually already kind of semi-drowning them, um, also (laughs) treating them with chloroform. And he realized that in these cases, the ants appeared questionably dead, and that might confound their peers' responses. As a sort of middle ground to still incapacitate the ants while giving them the appearance, not of being dead, but just in needing of a little assistance, uh, he actually got them drunk <laughs> off of beer. Nice. <laughs> um, and this experiment worked pretty well the results were that the uh sober colony ants recognized their wasted friends and carried them home to the colony Oh that's <laughs> Which, sweet
2: right oh they're my just gosh. like us that's so cute They're just like us Emily. but until
0: you consider that they tossed the drunk strangers to the curb and by the curb i mean in the water to drown to death so
2: oh my god on second thought they're just everyone... like us <laughs> <laughs>
0: This week I learned that the Guinness Book of World Records came to be after Sir Hugh Beaver, the manager of Guinness, got into an argument about the flying speed of the Golden Plover.
2: Hugh Beaver is a hell of a name.
0: Oh, just you wait. There are some phenomenal names that get tossed around (laughs) this fact. So before I go into it further, though, I have a little straw poll for you guys, if you'll humor me. In all the times that you've been to the pub, grabbed a beer or two, and shot the (laughs) S-word with some (laughs) friends, have you ever found yourselves sucked into a heated debate about the identity of the fastest game bird in Europe?
2: Uh, only every single time I've recounted line-by-line Monty Python's search for the Holy Grail. (laughs) Was it a European golden plover or an African golden plover?
0: It was a European.
2: Oh, well that settles that. I never have. I've never been encountering such a
1: thing. I don't go to the right bars.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe you do. But fair enough. Uh, So the Guinness Book of World Records was created to address that exact concern, that trivia arguments were brewing discontent and inciting outbreaks of factual fisticuffs and thwarting (laughs) the harmonious (laughs) consumption of Guinness in pubs all over the world. There's a
1: great (laughs) trivia name, Factual Fisticuffs. Oh, that's amazing. That's a
0: great team name. Dibs. (laughs) (laughs) Damn it. So, our story starts, as the best ones on this podcast do, with a series of, as I mentioned before, ridiculous names. So, we have Sir Hugh Beaver, the managing director of Guinness Breweries, and he went out shooting with some friends one afternoon in 1951 in North Slob. <laughs> North <laughs> North Slob. I, I love it.
3: Where is that? It's in Ireland. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs>
0: So he was out with his buds, and he missed a shot at a golden plover, and likely trying to excuse the fact that he totally whiffed it, insisted that it was the fastest game bird in Europe, while his companions insisted that that title actually belonged to the Red Grouse. So fun facts, just to, you know, get rid of all the suspense that I'm sure everyone is suffering right now, the Golden Plover is actually the faster of the two. So he got lucky that time. Mm, I knew it, Rob. (laughs) But it was also in that moment that he realized that he was facing a very specific dilemma that maybe other people were also facing. And thus the idea of the Guinness Book was born. So whether that assessment, um, in terms of people having these arguments and destroying friendships over which bird flies faster, uh, was founded or not, I do believe that he was at least a little ahead of his time. Honestly, I could totally see it being pitched nowadays in Silicon Valley as Uber, but for facts. (laughs) Ubered. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) So, while Sir Beaver provided the idea and the funding for the Guinness Book, uh, the... I compl- <laughs> just
1: can't get over Sir Beaver. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, I have another... It's like the wind in the willows. So it's like, Sir name.
0: Beaver is coming! <laughs> <laughs> um, so, while Sir Beaver provided the idea and the funding for the Guinness Book, the compilation of records and actual writing of the book uh, fell to twins Norris and Ross McWorter, mm. uh, appropriately tapped because they actually ran a fact-finding agency in London at the time. Oh, cool. Which is... Not a thing that I knew existed, but essentially their job was compiling. Do this podcast. (laughs) Well, exactly. I was like, "What? Why why are we one of those? But their job was compiling facts to dole out to various outlets, especially for sports. So these guys were also pretty remarkable. They were both reported to have had encyclopedic and photographic memories, which they showed off on the television series Record Breakers, which involved them answering audience questions about literally any entry in the Guinness books to date, and they would give detailed, accurate answers just on the spot. So could they remember
1: more words or more pictures? Because a picture's worth a thousand words.
0: (laughs) (laughs) If we were to quantify (laughs) just how good their memory was, (laughs) I guess that's how you do it. Fair enough. And upon the opening of Guinness Superlatives Incorporated, their offices on Fleet Street in 1954, the brothers set to work writing the first edition of the book, and they worked really late, or... I dare say, super late on those superlatives. (laughs) So dumb, but I can't help myself. Um, And actually spent 13 and a half, 90-hour weeks gathering all the facts and receiving submissions for new records and then contacting the appropriate sources and experts to verify whether those new records could actually be feasible and debunking them if they weren't. The first book itself was 200 pages long and had 4,000 records, which is actually still the number of records per book to this day. Um and just to give you a little bit of a, a taste of what the first set of records included, uh, John R. Cobb, who was then the holder of the World Land Speed Record at four hundred and three miles per hour in his custom designed Napier Railton race car. Wow. It's actually pretty fast when you, like yeah, what do you think about it, especially for then. What time? Uh nineteen fifty four. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I was impressed. Uh, Manningford Faith, Jan Graceful, uh, the cow (laughs) with the highest lifetime milk yield. What? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, why not?
2: Oh, oh, cow.
0: (laughs) What did you hear? I thought, count. Like...
2: like, One beautiful
3: milk yield. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Don't stop. (laughs) One gallon. Ah, ah, ah. Two gallon.
2: I sincerely (laughs) thought that whole long name was some like German count. (laughs)
0: <laughs> and no, then you said just, milk yield. It was just a very distinguished <laughs> cow. She earned all those titles. You know. Yeah. Um, another entry that I thought was kind of entertaining uh, was the Smith's Arms, which was at the time the smallest pub in Britain and measured 10 feet wide and four feet high. It's since closed, but I was kind of Googling it anyways, and it had an interesting legend associated with it, which was that it got its liquor license because one day King Charles II swung by the town and was like, hey, someone give me a beer. And they're like, we don't have a license for that. And he was like, well, now you do. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Kinged. Nice. (laughs) Uh, So Norris and Ross served as the main writers and editors of the Guinness Book for most of their lives, with Norris staying on the staff for the most part as a writer and then later as a consultant for a little over 50 years. It was pretty impressive. Wow. And that first edition of the book, which was released in 1955, was also a top seller in Britain, and its launch in the U.S. a year later was really successful as well. And since then, it's gone over to sell over 100 million copies in 100 different countries and in 37 languages making it, satisfyingly, the Guinness World Record holder for best-selling copyrighted book in history. Wow. So the book has its own record.
2: So since our main fact is about sort of just Guinness, beer in general, um, I thought I would point out a couple sort of liquid consumption records One is that the official fastest time to drink a bottle of ketchup was 17.53 seconds and was achieved by André Ortolf from Germany, and I was in Augsburg uh, in 2017. Then um, the fastest time to drink uh, half a liter of water was 1.75 seconds. Wow. Achieved in 2014. Well, you say wow. Half a liter. Half a liter. Okay, but the official Guinness Book of World Records fastest time to drink one liter of beer is 1.3 seconds. What? That's less than the world record for half as much water.
0: (laughs) And that's, I assume, unassisted, like without like a funnel.
2: Yeah, it was just it was just a like a liter in a jug. Oh, God. <laughs> the beer record was set in nineteen seventy seven, uh, in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And that actually was a what it says here, a fifty six percent improvement over the previous world record set several years earlier by Peter Dowdswell of England. That was two point three seconds for one liter. So the record oh, holder for half a liter of water is not even close to that. I mean, it, you know, propagating by volume, like that's nothing. We should get on that. Ooh, the, the, the water half liter is wide open. I just open. feel like the water half liter record is just begging to be broken.
1: <laughs> so I had, a, I had a roommate back in college who would come home every night after drinking and then take a regular pull and spring bottle of water, and he would grab the top and the bottom of the bottle and then twist it in opposite <laughs> directions, and he could drink it in a second. Wow. And I thought it was, as a 19-year-old, the most impressive thing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Had you seen a girl yet <laughs> <laughs> things were different back then all right like I just
0: <laughs> simpler times simpler times but I just remember he did
1: it and he threw the crushed bottle on the ground and he said instant hydration
3: <laughs> oh <my God. laughs>
0: All right, guys, we've arrived at the quiz, the proverbial pot of gold at the end of our trivia rainbow. Now, you guys might have noticed that while I talked about the origin of the Guinness World Records in my fact, I didn't divulge any anecdotes about the records themselves. Hmm. That's because I'm going to ask you about an assortment of some standout Guinness World Records and record attempts in this week's quiz. Oh, boy. All right, so get your lucky charms. You're going to need them. <laughs> okay <laughs> How I feel about that? we're gonna scrap that I line I don't have any milk <laughs> <laughs> call the count <laughs> <laughs> all right so let's see if we can break some fax machine records with all right this quiz all right so question one the world record for the most of these, which were invented accidentally by a chemist at 3M, stuck to a human face in one minute is 58. What are these?
1: I think it's post-it notes. Oh, post-it
2: notes. Yeah. Yeah. Although
1: they were actually invented by Romy and Michelle. Who? I just want to point that out. If anybody.
2: Yeah. What? Okay. <laughs> what?
0: Is, is there? Is there an age divide that just yes. became apparent? Okay. Yeah. Sorry.
2: <laughs> you should be Sorry. <laughs> Okay, so the answer is post-it notes.
0: Yes, the answer is post-it notes. Um, and I should mention that I found this on a list called 17 World Records that you could break tomorrow. <laughs> so to our listeners, if any coworkers <laughs> swing by your cubicle tomorrow to ask why your face is papered in post-it notes, be sure to refer them to Fax Machine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what was the number? 58. 58. That is so
0: doable. It really is. And the only rules are they must be normal dimensions, so like, you know, normal square post-it notes, placed by the owner of the face, <laughs> attached for at least 10 <laughs> seconds after the minute is over, and not on the owner's eyelids, which I assume is only for safety reasons, but, anyway. so I don't know. I think it's doable. Yeah.
3: Let's try get that. on it. All right. Yeah. I like it.
0: <laughs> to do. Question two. Uh, Kane Tanaka announced by Guinness on March 9th, 2019, as the world's current oldest person, was born the same year as the Wright Brothers' first flight. How old is she?
2: Wright Brothers' first flight was 1905. I thought it was seven. Okay, 1907-ish. So 112, 111 or 112. Something like that. Sounds too young. I would have thought it would be like, well, it could be 112. Let's go with that. 112.
0: I, I want to give it to you because you guys were very close. Uh, so she's 116. Okay. Uh, the oh, flight was years. December 17th, 1903. But I'm okay, no, so we, we overshot right. slightly, yeah. but we you know That's had the
2: right decades. So. 1903. I feel right. okay with
0: that. Yeah. Uh, the oldest person to have ever lived was jean Louise Calment, who was born in 1875 and died in 1997 at a whopping 122 years old.
2: Wow. I, I,
0: crazy.
2: I think that uh, she was the one who was, like, obsessed with, like, olive oil. And I, I think yeah, she was obsessed with olive oil and, like, claimed that she, like, rubbed it all over her body and that's what was, like, responsible for her longevity. And I think this is the person where the quote is, uh, she, she said, uh, I only have one crease on my entire body and I'm sitting on it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, that is baller. I'm pretty sure that was her. <laughs> That's... I know a lot more about her than I thought. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> now that I'm talking about just it. She's all
0: getting pulled out of the air. All right. So question three. Who was recently awarded the Guinness World Record for longest career as a live action Marvel superhero? There are two correct answers.
2: So, so the question is the actor or the character?
0: The, the actors.
2: Okay
1: oh uh, oh, but it,
0: they're oh go ahead. It, yeah. um,
1: assuming it's a pair, it would be Sir Patrick Stewart and Ian McClellan. And neither of them are dead.
0: Almost. you got half of it right. Oh really? Yeah.
1: Okay. are they dead. They- no, no, neither of them are dead
0: no they're, they're oh my god they go
1: they go out in the city all the time <laughs>
0: what, 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 oh my god don't do that to me <laughs> so
1: this one's not about dying
0: <laughs> oh, please uh, Oh, oh
1: right
2: right oh my god that was the last question
1: okay yeah. thank god okay so this uh, question
2: is just about they were the longest, longest uh okay. superheroes yes um <laughs> <laughs> longest superheroes <laughs> just like it's the lasting girl really real yeah i <laughs> <laughs> Um, Um, so you say Patrick Stewart is one of them. Um, so then, um, Hugh Jackman. Yes. Uh, Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah. Because
2: they were both in Logan.
0: Exactly. So it was Wolverine and Professor X, Hugh Jackman and Patrick Stewart, respectively. Uh, In the X-Men films, of course, they've both performed these roles for over 16 years, starting with X-Men in 2000 and most recently in Logan in 2017. Wow. Um, And actually, I was reading an article about this. Hugh Jackman has a history of attempting to win Guinness World Records. As a kid, he and his brother attempted to break the records for most coins snatched off one's elbow and (laughs) longest badminton game. Question four. In two thousand four, the NYC restaurant Serendipity Three released their most expensive dessert, and now the record holder for the world's most expensive dessert, the Golden Opulence Sunday. How much does it cost? I'll accept within a fifty dollar window.
1: I think it's a thousand dollar milkshake. Okay. Or a thousand dollar Sunday. I will defer to you. Yeah, because I can't imagine it's a ten thousand dollar Sunday. So I think it's a thousand dollar
0: that's correct. Yeah, $1,000? $1,000. Yeah,
1: it's $1,000. On? Damn. Yep. You have to order it 24 hours in advance. Oh. Um, so so I should say two things quickly. One is that Serendipity 3 is like six blocks from here. And two, for the listeners that don't know this, I won a bet last year where I get free milkshakes for a year.
3: <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and I oh, was yeah.
1: really intent
3: on getting this. This is
2: great. Actually, so like <laughs> Rob and I went to IHOP after trivia one night, just like at 2 in the morning. <laughs> And Rob orders two milkshakes, and then is just taking pictures of them. And we're like, Rob, why are you doing this? And he's like, well, I want a bet where I get free milkshakes. And if I document the milkshake and send it to someone, they, give, they just send me the amount that the milkshake cost. And he was like, I'm really pushing the boundaries here by sending two. And then I think she did actually send you double milkshake. This <laughs> is a great bet. It's a binding bet.
1: She had no idea how much I liked milkshakes when we made this bet.
0: Well, I'm what, sure you the, liked them after. Well, the, you best won the, part, the best <laughs> part
1: of this bet is that, what what were the stakes of the bet? Oh, so if I won, I got free milkshakes for a year. And if she won, she got the sweatshirt that I'm wearing right now. <laughs> <laughs>
3: it's the stupidest bet.
2: I mean, it's a really nice sweatshirt, Rob.
1: Yeah, which is my but... favorite sweatshirt, hands down. I value it at the cost of a year's worth of milkshakes. <laughs> But I mean, would she? That's the question. No, not hey, at all. Yeah,
0: that's not an even deal. <laughs>
1: what, what was the bet on? It was on fantasy football. Okay. Yeah. Like, a so random, it was worth it. Totally worth it. <laughs> okay.
2: All right. So Intriguing. that's how Rob knows a lot about ice cream. He's been scoping out the $1,000 Sunday. <laughs> yeah. So, so watch out.
0: <laughs> question five. A few weeks ago in Mesa, Arizona, hundreds of people attempted to break the world record for largest yoga class, featuring what even-toed ungulate?
2: Llama or goats? Even-toed. Because there's goat yoga. Um, Wait, really? Yeah, yeah. That's like a big thing. Is it goat yoga? Yeah, you got it. Yeah, I wasn't sure if you guys had heard of it. Goat yoga is cool. I mean, I've never done it, but I I like watching videos of goats.
1: Really doing anything. If I've ever heard of it, I thought it was goat yogurt.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Which is also a thing. Sounds very (laughs) legit. There's goat milk. I guess there's goat yogurt. (laughs) So I saw this in an article uh, whose title starts with, Bah mustay. <laughs>
3: Damn. The record
0: involved 351 human participants and 84 goat participants. Uh, and the yoga instructor, Sarah Williams, has actually had prior experience in this arena, having broken the Guinness World Record for the fastest time to climb over a human tunnel by a goat a in 2017. <laughs> so much in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they'll find out in May if they, uh, if they broke this record as well.
2: Oh, you know what's great is that if they get the record, then they're also the greatest of all time. (laughs)
3: Yes! (laughs) (laughs) Next question! All right.
0: Question six. Despite this having over three billion combinations, but only one solution, in quotes, the record for solving one is somehow 3.73 seconds. What is this? Rubik's Rubik's Cube. Cube. Yes. Mm -hmm. Very nice uh so the speed cuber nathaniel berg of sweden is the proud owner of this record uh, as of the 2015 danish open championships and in case you guys are interested in setting a rubik's cube related record which if anyone would be interested it's probably you guys um i gotta warn you you say
2: that but in a way that makes me think you're not complimenting us
0: (laughs) (laughs) i leave it up to interpretation i i gotta warn you though that the playing field is pretty crowded uh there are world record holders for the following rubik's cube associated feats most rubik's cubes solved in a bicycle it's 1010 most rubik's cubes solved underwater while holding your breath
2: yeah the underwater one i've seen videos of it's really 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 cool that's
0: nuts uh largest rubik's cube solved by a robot nine by (laughs) nine we're doomed fewest moves to solve a rubik's cube 19, and it's not by the same guy that solved one in 3.73 seconds. So how that works, I don't know. And the fastest time to solve a Rubik's Cube while juggling which is 22.25 yeah. seconds.
2: And it wasn't this, I don't know if it's that record, but I know that this kid set some record by, I think he solved three Rubik's cubes while he was juggling them. And so like every time it comes down into his hand, he like turns one and he's like watching it. And the most incredible, like heart stopping moment was he at some point while he's juggling all three of these, two of them hit each other in midair. And then he catches them and goes back to it and actually finishes it out and, like, breaks the record or something. Because there's also the clock in the background yeah. counting down and the entire audience is like, oh, no.
1: And, <laughs> and there's, then, like, an entire oh, cube yeah. that's not done yet and yes. there's only, like, 12 seconds left.
2: And then, like, when when the cubes hit each other in midair, the, like, the audience just screeched. They were like, no. <laughs> <laughs> but then he saved it and everybody just lost their minds. It was great.
0: Wow. <sighs> Question seven. <laughs> <laughs> What primetime television celeb holds the Guinness World Record for most frequent clapper?
2: It, the, it's over one's entire life. So it must be like on TV, like has clapped the most over their career on television. Yeah. Right.
0: So that's true. It's it's recorded.
1: So primetime okay. though. So like, it's not a late night show. It's not like a Jimmy Kimmel or
2: somebody. No. I mean, is it somebody on like a show like American Idol or one of those like talent shows?
0: It is. It's a game show.
2: Oh. Oh, it's Vanna White.
0: Yes, oh, yes. From exactly. From the wheel
2: absolutely. of fortune.
0: Yes. <laughs> <What exactly? laughs> that, that exact wheel, yes. So it's estimated that she's clapped uh, at least 3,480,864 wow. times across the show's 30 seasons. That's an average of 606 claps per show as of her record break in 2013. That's incredible. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah, her arms must be so toned. Oh, my <laughs> All right, question eight, our last question. The 2019 edition of the Guinness World Records features Barry John Crow of Cavan, Ireland, a butcher who recently earned the title of most sausages produced in a minute. How many sausages did he roll to break the record? I'll take a margin of five.
2: Oh, man. Sausages rolled in a minute. Yeah. What okay. goes into rolling a sausage? Yeah. Yeah. How I mean, what do you think per second? Could you roll a sausage in a second? That's I have no idea. I, I like I don't know I don't, how they get in the no roll. no Idea, what that even means? Like in, how big are these sausages? Oh, really? In Is my head, like a standard
1: sausage roll. In my head, it's like the ticket machine at a deli, and the guy's just running with it, like pulling a <laughs> out per second. So
0: you take the the actual ground meat for the sausage and fill it into like the natural casing, right. the intestine. And then it's just one long intestine filled with sausage. I actually, like when I was a small child, used to make sausages. i my like, well, it's why I don't get squeamish. Um, <laughs> and then you take that long, continuous intestine full of meat and twist it off mm-hmm. in like little links okay. to separate it. So, uh, so what he's he, doing is
2: the twisting.
0: Exactly. So the, it's
1: how is, many twists. Can there be mechanical assist pulling the intestinal sausage chain?
0: My understanding is that he just had the long, continuous, single sausage, Meat too, and then but... yep, okay. and then made a bunch of smaller ones.
2: This makes me think like two per second. Okay, I'm cool with that. 120. He's she said within five. 120. Five.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Why would that change your answer?
2: (laughs) It wouldn't. I'm just scared because we're not gonna get it. Let's go 120. What? 120. Wait, wait. Do you think it could be more? (laughs) I don't don't know. Should we? Should we? What was his name again? What what was his name again?
0: Uh, his name. I'm just trying to count. No, just his name is Barry John Crow. All right.
1: Should we bet on Barry? (laughs) Yeah. Because now that I'm thinking about it, a second is a really long
2: time, and you can make that twisting motion super
1: fast. Uh, Let's
0: say one,
2: two. Okay, let's say five a second. That was more than a second. Oh, okay, let's say three and a half a second.
0: You know how long a second is, right?
2: Yeah, it's, you know, one one thousand. (laughs) I think, well, Anthony is counting out seconds with his hands, and every single time I can go, all right, one, two, three, four, five. I can do five. I can do five in a second. I think I could break this record, guys. (laughs) Okay, it's definitely definitely 300 second. 300 rolls.
0: (laughs) Is is that your final answer?
2: Uh, I don't think so, now that (laughs) you've responded
0: like that.
1: Yes. I'm feeling closer to two, but I'm good with 300 as a guess.
2: Okay, you want to average that? 250?
1: Okay, 250.
2: 250,
1: final answer.
0: Okay, you are both stunningly wrong. Um,
1: that's like the answer seven. is actually
0: seventy-eight, Aww. which is faster than a sausage a second. I still think that's quite impressive. <laughs> Two hundred and fifty is—I don't think—feasible. I
1: think we worked our way. We started like the very <laughs> barrier of logic, and we just kept charging in the
2: wrong direction. You're but, going down, Barry. That's all I'm saying. If you could only do just over one a second,
0: we're Barry. Gonna he's crush a, you. He's a sweet man. Um, How do you know? I, the reading the article like he's he's just a very cheerful grateful person okay. and also from this okay. quote which I'd like to end on which I think kind of sums up the quiz and the episode well I'd love to just say to people go for it if you feel that you can do a Guinness World Record title go for it
2: okay it's just so sweet I'm good I'm coming for your record Barry <laughs> <laughs> enjoy your 15 Barry, minutes of fame <laughs> I'm so sorry
0: Barry <laughs> run Barry run <laughs> <Not my intent. laughs> All right, guys, thanks for listening. If you want to check out some more content from us, you can see our social media accounts. We're on Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast and also on Instagram and Twitter at Fax Machine Pod. And you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at underscore MCosta, Rob. At Whiteboard Rob. And Noah. At Arcs and Sciences. And producer Anthony at The Cosmic ACA. Fax Machine is hosted and written by me, Emily Costa, Rob Raleigh, and Noah Guyberson. It's produced by Anthony Antonelli, and our logo was designed by Mike Zola. And we implore you if you guys like what you heard, maybe tell a friend about us. That'd be really nice. Uh, we also do have an upcoming live show, so stay tuned for more details about that. That's all for now. Thanks for tuning in. Bye. 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 For the average mustachioed Guinness drinker, um,
2: the mustachioed Guinness drinker. For is that what it was? Yeah. There. So
0: the average mustachioed Guinness drinker. One more time, the average mustachioed Guinness drinker. Nope. No, <laughs> <laughs> that was worse.
3: <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs>